If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to, thank you, turn over to Isaiah chapter 5 and chapter 27. If you don't have your Bible, you can find uh, these verses printed in the bulletin. We're beginning a new series today in the book of Isaiah. It, Isaiah is a long book in the Old Testament, uh, 66 chapters. Uh, we're not going to cover every single verse. We're going to cover most of them, a, a whole bunch of verses in Isaiah we're going to cover between now and Christmas. And so today we're going to start in 5 and 27 because I think these two passages kind of summarize what the whole book's about. So we're going to get started looking at the, the big picture of Isaiah this morning. Please hear God's word. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its edge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth until it, into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant humbled, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. And the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. 
Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. This is God's word. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Isaiah, in these two chapters, sings this song about a vineyard. He says, I'm singing about the one I love. I'm singing to the one I love. That's God. And I'm singing about his vineyard, which was described in verse 7 as being the people of Israel. Isaiah here is setting up one of his major themes. Uh, Throughout the book, he's going to tell us about what true comfort is, what true comfort for God's people is all about. Uh, Think about this. How much in your life do you value comfort? Uh, I think if you're like the average person, you'd say, well, a whole lot, right? I mean, a whole lot of the efforts we expend every single week is to try to gain some measure of comfort. And normally, when we fill in the blank, I am most comfortable when blank, most of the time we put in there you know, something relatively superficial when we think about it, right? Uh, I am most comfortable when I have enough money not to worry about money. Uh, I am most comfortable when I have a job that I truly enjoy and I can't wait to get up in the morning to go do it. I am most comfortable when my kids behave and treat me with respect, right? I mean, most of the time, comfort is directly related to some superficial thing or or relatively superficial thing. It's not that those things are not important. Don't hear me wrong. Uh, You know, God wants us to be blessed in all of those ways. God has great plans for his people in every single aspect of their life from now and eternity. But Isaiah is very clear. The comfort that we often seek is not the true comfort that will last forever. After all, when Isaiah sings this song about the vineyard, Israel is at its peak, uh, especially the, the nation of Judah to the south. They were at its peak level of comfort. They were rich. The economy was booming. There was no pandemic. There was no, you know, there was no unrest or war. Everything was riding high on the hog. And yet Isaiah comes and says, wait a minute, this stuff's going to pass away real quick. Uh, God's got something in store that's not going to be fun. It's not going to be nice and pretty. But yet, here's what I'm offering you, Israel. True and everlasting comfort in me. In in the year 1563, which is almost 500 years ago, uh, a pastor in Germany named uh, Pastor Ursinius. Ursinius. If you're looking for a baby name, there you go. It's free of charge today. Pastor Ursinius uh, wrote a catechism. A catechism is a, basically a teaching tool for the Christian faith. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, after Heidelberg, Germany. And in the very first question, listen to what he asks in, in that catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That's the question. That it opens the whole thing. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Now think about the question for a minute. He's implying... That there's only one of these kinds of comfort out there, right? The only comfort. Like you can't find this comfort anywhere else and in any other way than what I'm about to tell you. Also, he says, this only comfort is in life and in death. You know, the comfort that he's offering or telling you about is not one that lasts for just one slice of life or one season of your life. It's one that goes throughout life and beyond, into death itself, beyond life. A comfort that can never be taken away. Listen to his answer. What is my only comfort? He says, my only comfort is I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood, fully satisfied for my sins, delivered me from all the power of the devil, so preserves me that that without the will of my heavenly Father, not one hair can fall from my head. 
so that everything must work together for my salvation. And by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life so that I am sincerely willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a mouthful. But that's true comfort. I don't think Pastor Ursinius was trying in that answer and question to summarize the book of Isaiah, but he hit the nail right on the head. The Song of the Vineyard unfolds in three sections. If you look at your bulletin, I want to talk you through those three sections of the song. First of all, we learn about the God who plants and the way that God establishes his vineyard, his people. Secondly, we learn about the pride that destroys, uh, the reason why God's going to let his vineyard be destroyed. And then lastly, we learn about the way that leads to true comfort, how God's vineyard can be restored even after it's already been destroyed. So the God who plants, the pride that destroys, and the way that leads to true comfort. Now, first of all, let's look at the God who plants. There in chapter 5, if you'll look at it, verses 1 and 2. Uh, describes this relationship that God has with his people. Remember, God is the owner and the people are the vineyard in this song. It's like a metaphor where God is saying, look, compare me to a vineyard owner, compare yourself to a vineyard that that owner cares for. And notice, it is care that is at the very center of those first two verses. One writer says, the only difference between something domesticated and something wild is a matter of care. The only difference between something domesticated and something wild is a matter of care. Uh, kids, if you have a pet at home, uh, what happens if you don't care for your pet for a day, two days, three days, a week? What happens? Uh, eventually, uh, sad to tell you, that pet will eventually expire out of this life because that pet is used to being domesticated, meaning he's used to your care. And when that care gets withdrawn, literally life will get withdrawn. Uh, if you're going through the woods and you happen to see a, maybe a muscadine grapevine, just wild out there growing, um, that muscadine grapevine is probably not feeding anybody. It's just out in the woods, maybe feeding squirrels and such. Um, that, that vine is probably not at its maximum fruitfulness. It's probably got different diseases that it's battling with, different bugs, different... Um, different scavengers that are always coming and biting off of it. That's a wild vine just kind of left to its own devices. But if you go into somebody's well-kept vineyard, you'll see maximum fruitfulness. They've taken care of the bugs. They've taken care of all the scavengers. They've kept all that stuff away so that the maximum yield can come. Care leads to maximum yield, or at least it should. And this passage, what he's saying here is that God's relationship to his people means that God is the ultimate caretaker of your life, the ultimate caregiver. My loved one, it says, God had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. I mean, that means God picked a hillside that was perfect for maximum yield. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He, he worked the ground to make sure the ground was absolutely just right, as best he could get it, to plant and grow grapes. Uh, he planted it with the choicest vines. In other words, he didn't just go and get the, you know, the, the, the last remnants of seeds that were left over that nobody wanted. He went and got the very best vines he could find, and he planted them. He built a watchtower in it, meaning he was there to stay. Like He, he was going to move into the vineyard and live in the watchtower and spend his days from on high watching over what was going on in his vineyard. Uh, it says he cut a wine press in it meaning he cared about what was going to be the result of his vineyard. He was going to take those grapes and turn it into something 
that was going to be a blessing to other people. Wine, in this case. I mean, just think about this as a picture of how God cares for us. Isaiah has a lot to say about this. Over and over again, we're going to see it throughout the series. God compares himself to an owner. He compares himself to a father. He compares himself to a husband. And in this time when Isaiah was living, those were the three number one, and people recognize those as the three number one caregivers in society. The owner for his field and his employees, uh, the, the father to his children, the husband to his wife, and to their children together. The difference between a good owner and a bad owner is good care or bad care or no care, right? And here Isaiah is saying to Israel, you got to know the Lord God Almighty, which is what he calls him in verse 7, this Almighty God has been the perfect caregiver to you in spite of your unfaithfulness. Here's my question for us this morning. Do you think of your life as a wild vine left and abandoned to your own devices? You've got to, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I've got to figure out how to get myself through this life in the best way possible. Nobody's there to care for me or watch over me. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. It's just me, myself, and I. Or have you learned the very important lesson of seeing your life as being under the careful hand, the, the generous investing hand of God? Do you know God as your owner? That's Isaiah's question. You see, the people of Israel at this time, like I told you at the beginning, were prosperous. And yet their big mistake was to think that prosperity was the result of themselves that they were in the position they were in because they had succeeded. You know, they had made all the right decisions. They had gotten the proper education. They had done this, that, or the other. They were just smarter than other people. That's why maybe they would have said, God bless me, but they thought God bless me because of what I did. This is a reminder that in God's world, there are really, truly no wild vines. Did you hear me? In God's world, there really are truly no wild vines. Every person, every part of creation, even the, the wild vine in the woods, is underneath God's hand. And God is constantly giving generously of all his wealth and all his riches to make sure our lives don't just keep going, but that they keep going well. Now, we tend in our society, I think, to ignore this just like the Israelites did. I mean, it has become an art form in our society to ignore God. An art form. We know how to do it. We know how to go days and days and weeks and weeks on end never thinking about God. We know how to live, even if we wouldn't call ourselves atheists or agnostics, we know how to live like one, don't we? We got that down to a T. We know how to think that my life is all about what I put into it, what I invest into it. We don't even think for a moment about an investor higher and greater than us. You say, well, you're accusing me of something pretty serious there. Think about your life. I think there are two big signs that you're doing this. And it can go one way or the other, depending on whether your life seems to be going well or not. Uh, one sign is arrogance. Israel was eat up with arrogance. Usually that happens when our life is going good. You know, we think, man, I'm so much better than those, that riffraff. Those people that just can't seem to get their lives together. I can't believe they, would, they make those decisions that they make. 
I make so much better decisions. And look at how things have turned out for me because of it. Arrogance. But when it's not going well, here's another sign. Bitterness. I can't believe that person has that. How in the world is their marriage so happy? And mine's not. Why would God withhold that from me and give it to them? Arrogance and bitterness are two of the greatest signs that you and I have mastered the art of ignoring God, of thinking that we're a wild vine when we're really nothing but just a domesticated vine underneath God's hand. Not a single breath you've ever drawn was a breath you created. You have never reached your hand into your chest and pumped your heart. (laughs) You've never done it. Every time, it was your owner, your maker, the Lord Almighty, caring for the vineyard that he loved, giving you all the things necessary for your life. That's the way God established Israel, and y'all, that's the way God has established all of creation. That's the first part of the song. The second part of it is the pride that destroys. Starting there at the end of verse 2, going all the way down to really verse 17 of chapter 5, we see the bad news here. Uh, A good way to think about what Isaiah is doing in the book is he's trying to show us true comfort, and the way to do that is is also the way Jesus used in his teaching. Uh, Somebody once said, Jesus had the habit of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. He afflicted the comfortable and he comforted the afflicted. Uh, Meaning, uh, those who thought they were comfortable because of the superficial things of life, he tended to come in and kind of hit, you know, knock down that house of cards for them. Show them they were really nothing without God, without him. For people who were afflicted with the fact that they were poor in spirit, they didn't have anything to offer God. Those were the people that Jesus came and poured comfort, like a soothing balm, like a healing ointment into their wounds. And Isaiah is the same exact way. Uh, There it says at the end of uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, God, after all the care he had given, looked for a crop of good grapes. Okay, which I think we can stop there and say, isn't that reasonable? Isn't it reasonable for the owner of a vine who's invested so much money, so much time, so much effort, isn't it reasonable that he would think, I'm going to get some grapes out of it? Now let me ask you this. If he doesn't get grapes out of it, or if the grapes are bad, as it says there in verse 2, the end of verse 2, literally the word means stink fruit. (laughs) Instead of good fruit, it produced stink fruit. Stanky fruit. Uh, Fruit that was poisonous, fruit that you didn't even want to smell. You can't turn it into wine because nobody would want to drink that stuff. It's just nasty fruit. Uh, Isn't it reasonable that if an owner found that his vineyard produced stink fruit, that he would be willing to take drastic action to correct the problem? He's not just going to keep pouring money and time and effort and sweat and all that stuff into a field that's only going to yield stinky stuff. Isn't that right? I mean, it just makes perfect sense. And God, surprisingly to Israel, says, hey, that's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to take drastic action. Sometimes when things go wrong, the only thing to do is just go back down to the beginning and start all over again. I think about the most simple example of that. Have you ever buttoned a shirt like this? And you didn't know you were buttoning the wrong button into the wrong hole at first, and you get all the way to the top and you're, You're trying to find the hole for the top button and it's nowhere to be found, you know, because you realize, you you know, it's all cockeyed. 
Well, unless you want to wear a shirt, sort of cockeyed, what do you have to do? You got to go right back down. But unbutton it all the way to the bottom or all the way to the top, whichever direction you tend to go, and you got to start all the way from the top, from the bottom up. Complete restart. There is no way you can sort of fix it by not doing that. And God says, with a vineyard, with my people, it's the same way. They are so ruined that the stinkiness of their fruit is so bad and so bred into them at this point that the only thing I can do is break them all the way down through judgment and through discipline so as to rebuild them back up from the ground floor. He says, uh, verse 3, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? It is not God's fault that Israel is in this state. It's not. It's not God's fault that they didn't bear good fruit. It was their fault. And so verse 5, now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. This is a sad part of the song. I will break down the hedge that I planted to protect it, and it will be destroyed. I will break down the wall I built to keep scavengers out of it, and it will be trampled. I will make my beautiful vineyard a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. You wanted to live like a wild vine, and now you're going to actually get to live like a wild vine. Full of briars and thorns, neglected by God. I, in fact, he says, I will command the clouds not to rain on you anymore. Here's the way it works. In our pride, even though we're owned by God and underneath his constant care, our pride wants to say, we're wild. Uh, it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I get to live without God. God is not really that relevant to my daily life. Maybe he's relevant at church, but he's not relevant anywhere else. We do that in our pride. And if pride is denying the reality of God, guess what? The reality of God is going to deny pride. Every time. In fact, one, uh, one person writing about the book of Isaiah says, the whole book is about the inevitable conflict, the inevitable conflict between human pride and the divine glory, God's glory. <laughs> Don't think that you can live proud and get away with it. Don't think we can live proud and get away with it. When you try to deny the reality of God, the reality of God one day somehow is going to deny you. And when the reality of God denies you, it is bad, to say the least. Uh, starting there in verse uh, 5, uh, it says um, these this various woes. You know, See how it begins with the word woe in verse 8 and then again in verse 11. And woe again, um, if you don't have this in your bulletin, but in verse 18 and in verse 20, in verse 21, in verse 22. Uh, and then you can see that right after the woes is a therefore. Uh, therefore, uh, in verse uh, 13, in verse 14, and so on. You can kind of see that yourself in the passage. The woes lead to the therefores. Uh, a woe means, oh, how sad it is what my people have done. Oh, how sad it is uh, that they have borne bad fruit in various ways in their pride. The poisonousness of that pride. And therefore, because of how sad it is, this is how I'm going, to, I'm going to go against them. I'm going to break it down to the bottom level to rebuild it from the, from the scratch, from the very beginning. I want you to notice, we don't have time to go into all the details here, but I want you to notice some of the outward effects of pride that was manifesting. So uh, in, in uh, verse 7, starting there, he begins to describe 
what was so stinky about the fruit that Israel was bearing. He says there, I looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Uh, in Hebrew, which is what uh, Isaiah wrote in, it's even more uh, interesting because the two sets of words sound exactly the same. So it would be kind of in English like saying, he looked for right, but he saw riot. Uh, he looked for, um, uh, what's another way to say it? The second uh, pair. He looked for um, delight and he found despair. That's a way to say it. He looked for right and he found riot. He looked for delight and he found despair. And, and writers talk about how this is intentional. Uh, Isaiah is trying to help Israel see, even though they couldn't tell the difference between a life of pride without God and a life fully acknowledging God, God could tell the difference. And sometimes that's the way it is, isn't it? Uh, a person can look very well kept, well put together, very religious, actually. They can look very spiritual. And yet God can tell, you know, sort of underneath the paint and the veneer, God can tell what's under, what's under there. He looks for right in our lives and he finds riot sometimes, not outwardly, but inwardly. He looks for delight from our hearts, but sometimes what he finds is a despair of heart that comes from thinking we're just a wild vine neglected out in the woods somewhere. Nobody watching over me. That leads to many other things. Uh, verse 8, woe to those who add house to house and field to field. In other words, it leads to greed. Uh, if you think you, you're taking care of yourself and only, your, only you are taking care of you, then that's going to inevitably lead to greed. You're going to hoard because after all, nobody's going to take care of me but me. And so here's people in Israel that were buying up the land, adding house to house. They didn't need that many houses, but they had them. They didn't need that many fields, but they had them. They had them so much that there was no space left, and they lived alone. I mean, imagine the, you know, isn't it funny that we think the more we get, the happier we'll be? But almost everybody who has a whole bunch will tell you it don't work that way. And yet here we are trying to do that, too. Even though they're trying to tell us, hey, I got a lot, but I ain't happy. And yet we think, oh, if I only had a lot, I'd be happy. God says it doesn't work that way. When I come against you, the great houses will be desolate. The mansions will be left without occupants. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after drinks. Stay up at night. These people are, you know, they know how to party. They know how to have a good time. But look at verse 12. They don't know about the deeds of the Lord. They don't respect the work of his hands. In other words, they know trivial things, even stupid things, foolish things, but they don't know the things of greatest importance in their life. Carelessness, disrespect. The list goes on. You can read the rest of chapter 5 on your own sometime. Uh, they're self-justifying. They actually became people who loved lies rather than the truth. They had terrible priorities in their lives. I mean, all that comes from pride. All of it comes from pride. And God, every time, comes with his therefore. If you're trying to stuff yourself in greed, I'm going to give you hunger. If you're trying to add house to house, I'm going to knock your houses down. If you try to go out and party and drink too much, I'm going to take away even the drink that you have, and you're going to have nothing. You're going to be full of thirst. You're trying to you know, live your own life in your own way, I'm going to give you death. The punishment with God always fits the crime. Pride always bears poisonous fruit. 
Sometimes it's just the natural consequence of our pride. Sometimes it's literally God coming in to give us a taste of our own medicine. Either way, it's what I said at the beginning. When we deny the reality of God, the reality of God will deny us. I wonder this morning, do we really, are we really convinced that living a life of self-pleasing is actually not a good thing? Are you really convinced of that? i got to be honest. I don't know that I often am convinced of that. And I say that because I tend to go right back to trying to please myself. I tend to go right back to thinking, oh, poor, woe is me. I'm a, I'm a wild vine. Nobody's there to watch over me. Nobody to take care of me. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Except I don't, I don't continue it with the next part. Nobody knows but Jesus. I forget about Jesus. I forget about what God has done and has promised to do. Pride is what that is. It's just what it is. And it will never, ever lead to good. The last part of the psalm is the way that leads to comfort. And now you've got to turn over. Well, actually, first uh, look at chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, and then we'll turn over to, to 27. What God says is there is a way for Israel to be restored. Believe it or not. I mean, he's just said, I'm going to knock it down. I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to burn it down. I mean, I mean, it sounds like this is hopeless. God's people are just done. And yet, look at what he says there in verse 16 and 17. God is going to find a way. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. And the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. What will happen then? The sheep will graze, as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Think about that, that picture. It's a picture of a big house, a mansion. You know, say one of the houses on Lake Hollingsworth. And imagine, nobody lives there anymore. Nobody lives on any of the houses because it's all been destroyed. And there goes a cow or, or a lamb just grazing in the front yard of one of those big houses. That's the picture. God says, when I do my work of judgment, there's not just a work of tearing down, there's a work of rebuilding. And the rebuilding is just going to be the exact reverse of the way it was before. Before it was, people who looked out for number one themselves kind of got ahead in life. I mean, that sometimes works for a little while in life. But there's going to come a day that's not going to work at all. The only way you're going to get ahead, so to speak, is by humbling yourself like a sheep, like a lamb, who deserves nothing except what your owner leads you into. And he's going to lead you in to what was left over from the rich from those who put themselves first. Not that every rich person puts themselves first, but you know what he's saying. He's saying there is a way to be arrogantly rich that God will one day fully judge by giving riches to the people who were humble. This is, by the way, exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang too. She sang a song too when she was told she was going to have a child. She sang a song that says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Because he has taken the mighty and brought them down. And he's taken the humble and he's brought them up. The rich go hungry, she says, but the poor are filled with all kinds of good things. What's she talking about? She's talking about the way salvation works. This is the way salvation works. This is the way Jesus came into the world to rescue people like me and you. It's so that when we see the brilliant holiness of God, we would humble ourselves so low that we would recognize 
The only way we can have anything good is to receive it as a gift. A gift that we did not earn and did not deserve. It's, it's learning to remember life is all about God's ability to create fruitfulness in me than it is about my ability to be fruitful in myself. The day of the Lord is what Isaiah calls it. That day when God will come and judge the whole world. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells us the day of the Lord is not just one day. It's a day with a capital D that's lasting a long time. It's a day that began with Mary's song. A day that began with Jesus' birth. And a day that will continue to the point when Jesus returns into this world to make all things new. We live, in other words, in the day of the Lord today. Today is the day of salvation. And what is before us is a, is a crossroads. It's, it's a, a watershed. You know what a watershed is? A place where a river splits or two rivers split off from each other that were running side by side. It's, it's the exit ramp at the interstate when the interstate's running out and it's turning into another interstate. And you know how that is. You, you have to either, you got to make a decision really quick, actually, <laughs> especially if it's an interstate. You're moving pretty fast. And at a certain point, if you make one decision, you can't reverse that. You can't just sort of flip a U-turn across and you know, across the divide between two roads. You know, you, you've got to make your decision in time to hit the crossroads at just the right time. Isaiah is saying that day is here. That day is here. The time is now to decide, are you going to be a self-exalting person who's one day going to be exposed as fruitless? I don't think anybody's going to say, sign me up for that. Or do you want to be a humble person at the feet of Jesus, knowing that your fruitfulness will only come by God's power in you. That's Jesus' whole life in a nutshell. He was born in a manger, humble. And yet from that manger, he gives us purity. He gives us life. He gives us health. He gives us a new chance to know God. The cross, terrible place, bloody place, awful place. And yet at that place, Jesus set up his kingdom a kingdom that will never end. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, a humble person born in a manger, died on a cross, now sitting in the highest place in the universe. I mean, think about it. Mary's song came true. The humble were exalted, the exalted have been humbled. This morning, are you in line with that reality? Am I in line with that reality? Am I trying to deny the reality of God, Isaiah is saying to us, or... Am I recognizing the reality of God by humbling myself so that God might exalt me by grace? There can be no part of us that says, I save myself. Not a single part. You need to get, we need to get it out of ourselves. That we've earned salvation, that we're better than someone else for any reason at all. We need to come hungry so that we might be filled. Low so that we could be lifted high. Poor in spirit, so we could be made rich. Amen? This is Isaiah in a nutshell.